Welcome to the Living Well Podcast for Morneau Chappelle. I'm your host, Mark Hennick. What does it mean to be a mental health advocate? In this episode, we're going to feature some of the conversations that I had during our mental health live show on Bell Let's Talk Day. All three of our guests today are powerful mental health advocates themselves. We'll meet Stéphane Grenier, a 29-year veteran of the Canadian Armed Forces. Stéphane is now a consultant and innovator in the mental health space who teaches and advocates for peer support programs in workplaces across the country. We'll also meet Ben Miller. He's the Chief Strategy Officer for Wellbeing Trust, an American foundation dedicated to advancing mental, social, and spiritual health. He has his finger on the pulse of mental health policy advocacy in America. But first, let me introduce you to Steve Lurie. Steve has been among my greatest role models, mentors, employers, and friends. He's been on the front lines of mental health advocacy for nearly half a century, work for which he was awarded the Order of Canada. He's recently retired as a long-serving executive director of one of the largest Canadian mental health association branches in the country. But he continues to advocate and affect change. I started uh, with CMHA Durham actually in uh, 1975 and then in 1979 when some people may remember Audrey McLaughlin, uh, who was the federal NDP uh, leader. When Audrey moved up to the Yukon to establish her political career uh, in 1979, uh, I got her job at the Toronto branch and then uh, I worked there until October 30th of 2020. Wow. So now having such a long view uh, of the mental health movement, I'm particularly interested in the advocacy uh, space within that and, and your very active part within it in many ways. And it seems like we've gone through phases in mental health advocacy. You know, in the 70s, it was it was very much consumer survivor movement, uh, maybe a bit of even the anti-psychiatry movement or, or critical psychiatry movement. Uh, and now it seems to be a very different uh, and very useful still kind of advocacy. Um, but what have you observed? over the course of that 40 years, uh, specifically in the social action space, in terms of how mental health advocacy has evolved? Well, I think the sector is way more sophisticated uh, mm. and able to point to a lot of evidence, which I remember when I had the opportunity to brief uh, Minister Philpot in 2016, I said, like, this is really about spreading and scaling the things that work. Uh, and, you know, we've had a 40-year history of doing things that work in the community uh, um, and and advocates really do need to be putting those things forward rather than saying the system's a mess mm. uh, because that doesn't create any incentive to do anything about it but if you can say look there are things that exist that you could scale uh, for example uh, yesterday the discussion at Toronto City Council talked about the 40 years of work that the Gerstein Center has done uh, you know uh, helping people with crises um, and it seems to me that what advocates need to be able to do is point to the positive as well as identify the shortfalls. I mean, and, the, and the shortfalls are many. You know, sometimes when uh, I'm despairing, I think this is a lot like um, the yes minister law of inverse relevance. The more we talk about something, the less we intend to do about it because we are still way short of an adequately resourced mental health system. And certainly COVID is going to exacerbate that. Um, you know, the, uh, there was an article in the Globe today that said after the uh, 1918 flu pandemic, um, the demand for mental health services continued to increase for six years. And that was 1918. Mm. Uh, now, uh, you know, we, we know so much more. I mean, for example, uh, 
Angus Reid um, did a poll at the beginning of the pandemic, 24% of the population was struggling, 41% was anxious, 16% was depressed. So I think advocates need to be able to say, we have to build a better mental health system. And ironically, the work uh, that was done by the Mental Health Commission in 2012, where, not 2012, 2012, uh, where, where they came up with a, uh, a goal to increase the proportion of healthcare spending that was devoted to mental health, we still haven't gotten there in a, in a measurable way. We're 16% of the way. And ironically, that would cost $85 per Canadian to adequately resource our mental health services across the country. So that's the other side of it. You need to be able to point to the things that could work. So housing first, multidisciplinary treatment teams, peer support, um, use some of the evidence that's out there, 20 uh, 11 and 2013, the Ontario and Canadian chiefs of police said that police were the default mental health responders in most right. communities, but that's because there isn't a mental health system. On the well, other well hand, talk talk to me a little bit uh, about that. What is uh, what is defund the police? I mean, it's such a politically charged thing, but how is it designed to address that issue? Well, theoretically, the assumption is that you can simply take money from the police budget and move it into social and health services. That's not realistic. Um, mm. But what you can do, and this is what I think city council hopefully will do, um, is you can develop uh, a more robust civilian crisis response system and show it works. Uh, so there are going to be four pilots in the city of Toronto, um, and there are pilots, you know, things, uh, a community-based crisis that works worldwide, like CAHOOTS in Eugene, Oregon. You scale up those programs, and then you say, if we had these in sufficient supply, and here's what it would cost, mm -hmm. you could then assume that police would have to respond less to crisis calls. You also have to create um, better pathways in. Most people uh, who are concerned about somebody call 911. But paradoxically, people with problems aren't the ones calling 911. So how do you develop a service that is responsive to needs? That's, in some cases, that's going to have to be local. Uh, in some cases, it will have to be built within the community, for example, within the Indigenous community. And they'll be able to access it through the access points that they know, but that you and I might not know. But again, this isn't rocket science. I mean, this is we, we've known for years that, you know, people being able to talk to somebody who's experienced what they've experienced. So the notion of peer support helps. Uh, the distress lines, 80,000 calls every year in the GTA to the, the distress centers. And to the credit of CMHA National, uh, the federal government and the distress centers of Canada, they're launching a five-year project to create a uh, three-digit number for uh, people to call uh, in order to prevent suicide. So, you know, we're making uh, uh, improvements, but they're very incremental. And I think what we actually need now, based on the evidence and based on the lived experience of people like you and others, we need to say, you know, there, there is no health without mental health. And I would argue that there's no mental health without housing. But we've got to be able to say that should be part of our building that better strategy. Uh, that means investing that $85 per capita in mental health and addiction services. It means major investments and commitment to reduce and end homelessness because the housing first uh, strategy 
that that's worldwide. We had the largest testing of that concept in Canada. We know that you know between 60 and 80 percent of the time you can reduce homelessness if you simply give people a place to live and flex the supports according to their needs. Yeah, and when you do the housing first, it turns out that it actually does help their mental health. I, would, I don't know why that was rocket science, uh, but but it turns out having a place safe, uh, safe place to live does help people's mental health. Yeah, you, Steve, I could talk about these issues forever, and I know that you could talk to them uh, about them longer with me, uh, <laughs> but we do have to get on to another guest. It's always a pleasure uh, to speak with you. Uh, I look forward to seeing uh, how much busier you get in your retirement. Uh, Steve Lurie is the former executive, the former longtime executive director of the Canadian Mental Health Association. Association uh, branch in Toronto. Uh, he's also Order of Canada. Can I call you Sir Steve now? Sure. And all thanks right. for including so, me, Mark. And thanks uh, to you for all the work you do to make uh, mental health and mental wellness visible. Thank you, Steve. Take care. When we come back, we'll explore the role the private sector is playing in mental health advocacy. The Living Well Podcast is brought to you by WellCan, a free mental health and well-being resource offered by Morneau Chappelle. At wellcan.ca and on the WellCan app in the App Store, you'll find information, assessments, and resources to support your mental health. WellCan resources are supplied by Morneau Chappelle's expert clinicians, as well as through partnerships with some of the biggest companies from across Canada and around the world. And now back to the Living Well Podcast and your host, Mark Hennig. Dr. Benjamin F. Miller, PsyD, is the Chief Strategy Officer for Wellbeing Trust, a national foundation committed to advancing the mental, social, and spiritual health of the nation. Ben has been featured in numerous media outlets, including NBC News, USA Today, NPR, PBS News, and many, many more. He explains how he and the Wellbeing Trust approach mental health advocacy. So we think about mental health and well-being, and we try and provide new ways to invest in strategies that haven't necessarily been invested in to date. So I get to oversee all that, make sure that it aligns with our mission, vision, values, and goals, and get to talk to great people like you. Well, I'm so grateful that, that you do this work, and, and particularly in the investment front as well. We've seen, uh, whether it's a, a dramatic increase in uh, venture capital in the mental health space, uh, apps that have come up, startups that have been coming up now, and all to meet a need, I think, uh, that our governments largely, I don't think this is controversial to say, but our governments are largely failing to meet. Um, what, is this a, an example of corporate America, corporate Canada uh, rushing to fill a gap uh, that, that is so plainly visible to everybody? Well, it's a brilliant question. And I think at the heart of it requires us to really go back and ask ourselves, has what we built ever worked? Mm. And really at the foundation of mental health, I think because of our history, because of some of the unbelievably traumatizing things we've done to folks, locking them away in hospitals, given them medications they didn't necessarily need, we've never really had the right foundation to be successful for mental health. So we can point fingers all the way around, and there's a lot of fingers that need to be pointed for sure. The blame can be passed around from generation to generation. But here you and I are in 2021 with an opportunity to really rethink the structure of how mental health is delivered, financed, and then codified through policy in our countries. And I think that's a pretty cool place to be considering, right? COVID-19 has made mental health a topic du jour, we can't literally make it through our day without talking about mental health. And so will we do something transformational in response to what I think we've seen our communities express their needs to be specifically around mental health? That's a role for government, but that's also a role for each of us. 
Like, what will we do when we go home tonight? Like Kevin was just saying, turn to the person next to you, ask them how they're doing, do something about it, but also take on the role of policy, which is all our responsibilities, just as much as, as it is checking on our friends and our colleagues. So then how do we take on that role of policy? How do we influence policymakers to actually make meaningful change, to provide uh, better social supports and mental health supports for people who need it? Yeah, so the most powerful, potent combination for change in policy is the story with data. Have the story alongside data. Many of us have the stories, not all of us have the data. We have to know what we're working towards. So my mentor always taught me that policy is movement in a direction for a reason. And the direction that I think we've been going with our countries is not the right direction, which means we need new policy to move in a different direction. That requires us to give the direction to the policymakers so they know where to go. So I think it really begins with an understanding of the issues, but also having a vision of what excellence could be. You know, Wellbeing Trust has put out a lot of materials, and I won't bore your, your audience with that tonight. But one of the things that we found is that because there was never a North Star, people were just kind of guessing as to what we should be doing. So we believed that we should collectively come together and pursue that big vision for what mental health should be. And ultimately, all of us come together and say, let's go there. Let's go there together. We had uh, fashion designer Kevin Cole on uh, the show a little bit earlier, and I understand your Wellbeing Trust participates in his mental health coalition as well. Yep, that's right. He's a great advocate, has done amazing things in his career to advance social causes, and I'm so happy that he's paying attention to mental health right now. Why did it take so long uh, for so many great organizations that are doing such wonderful things? Why did it take so long for them to all come together in such a way? Oh, my goodness. Well, how much time do we have? Like 30 seconds? Okay. I'll give you, I'll give you the, I mean, healthcare as a concept is a morass of competing business interests, mm. right? Everybody's got their piece of the pie and we're constantly at loggerheads as to what we want, what, you know, what they want is different from what we want. And I think it's been hard because never have we ever had something that we were working on together. We've had a lot of passion. I mean, we're never short on passion in this field, but we've not often had a playbook to, on which to operate on to do something together. So Mental Health Coalition and some other coalitions that are out there are now actively taking the next steps on what we should do together. Instead of just talk about it and raise awareness, it's actually about getting stuff done. Mm. No, I mean, the old adage, of course, in both policy and research is that you can't change what you don't measure. Uh, and I think that there's been a, a dearth of, of measurement in some ways. We've, had, we've got lots of science, of course, around mental health. Uh, but in terms of actually implementing policy changes or, or best practices that work for people uh, and rolling those out on, in a massive way, it's been very difficult to actually make the case. So how then do you tell that story with data that's kind of all over the place? Yeah. So I think it begins with the foundation of fragmentation. Everybody understands how hard it is to get access to care, how they have to work their way through the system. Using data or finding the right data to help really make that case is not hard to do, right? Fragmentation pretty much personifies what mental health has been, a, been about for decades. So once we figure out that fragmentation is the problem, which is a bumper sticker, integration is the solution. So then it becomes like, what are the stories of when you had, you received care from an integrated team? When was the story that you were actually able to go out there and to not have to work so hard to jump through hoops of fire just to be able to get what was best for you and your mental health care? Like to me, those stories, there's data out there. There's a lot of papers that are published. I mean, I've written them myself of wonderful models that have never been supported through policy or financing. Just combine those two, take it to your, your key policymaker and say, hey, listen, I've got an idea of ways that we can change mental health in our community. 
You know, it's so funny to hear you speaking about it this way, because I remember when I first wanted or when I first started doing my so-called normal podcast, um, my original idea for it was that I wanted to tell stories of hope and recovery primarily because I felt like it's absolutely necessary to tell the stories of struggle. I tell my story of my own struggle all the time. Um, But if we really want to move the needle and, and show people that recovery is not only possible, it's actually expected and likely when people get the help they need. And sometimes they find that help in really circuitous, unexpected ways. Um, But I was met with uh, a number of people, particularly at one large uh, network in the United States, that didn't really want to tell uh, hopeful stories of recovery. They wanted to focus, I think, on the on the trauma of it, um, on the sensationalism of it, maybe. So how then do we shift the narrative away from that, almost away from the the uh, the the um, graphicness or the salaciousness of it uh, into something more hopeful and more productive? Oh, Mark, I, that's such a wonderful question. And let's spend an hour on your podcast talking about this one day, because I think that truly what it comes down to is to recognizing that the United States and Canada, for you know, all intents and purposes as well, we've conflated mental illness and mental health. Mm-hmm. We've gotten confused on the differences between what it looks like to have just natural emotion, the feeling of sadness, not necessarily clinical depression, but we've gotten confused. And I think that's led to a place where we don't know how to talk about it. So we automatically think of the most extreme cases, you know, the person under the bridge that's talking to themselves. You know, we, we see that and we think that's what they're talking about when they were on that show discussing mental health. And so I think that the community has not always aligned on how best to frame mental health versus mental illness. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the next generation. And part of the work that we're going to have to do together is to normalize mental health and to figure out better ways to provide treatment and solutions for mental illness ideally preventing a lot of it along the way. Yeah, I still pe- I hear people all the time saying, you know, I, I think I think that person has mental health or I think I might have mental health. And I always say to them, I guarantee you, you have mental health. You may or may not have a mental illness, but the two things aren't interchangeable. Exactly. So that's awesome. But it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Uh, ben Miller is the Chief Strategy Officer for Wellbeing Trust, an American foundation dedicated to advancing mental, social, and spiritual health. Thanks, Mark. Be well. Finally, before we go, I want to introduce you to Stéphane Grenier, another Order of Canada recipient for his work as a champion for mental health. Stéphane is a nationally known mental health innovator, advocate, speaker, and entrepreneur. He retired from the Canadian military as a lieutenant colonel after 29 years of service. His autobiography, After the War, Surviving PTSD and Changing Mental Health Culture, tells Stéphane's story of the day he landed in the midst of the Rwandan genocide. Through his journey, to changing mental health culture in the Canadian military, developing national guidelines for peer support, all the way to creating his company, Mental Health Innovations. His experience in the military in particular, though, made it clear that advocating for a peer support approach to mental health was urgently needed among the citizen workforce. I've left the the military over a decade ago, so I'm really not in touch with what's happening today. So take my, my comment with a grain of salt. But what I do remember is that in the military, esprit de corps is very, very alive and well. This bond between people who fight together, who survive together, and, and, uh, uh, and who are there for each other. Not so when people uh, start struggling from mental health problems. Mm-hmm. And this is not different than what you and I and so many uh, consultants in the mental health field see in everyday workplaces, which is why I decided to leave the military in, at my 29th year of service and serve my country in a different way because I realized 
how much of a struggle it was for everyday Canadians in the workplace to overcome these issues. Because in the military, uh, one can say that we have an excuse, if, if, you, if you pardon my language, for developing a mental health problem in, in a lot of cases. But what about Joe Q Public, who works in a bank, who, who works at Home Depot? What's their excuse? And Canadians, I think, are being stigmatized even more than the military stigmatizes itself. Now, stigma is devastating wherever it happens. Sure. But I would say that in the civilian population, the civilian workplaces, I think it's worse. And therefore, uh, that's why I decided to serve Canada in a different way and really try to rehumanize workplaces by allowing people to be human uh, mm -hmm. at home and at work. Wouldn't that be cool, Mark? If people just could be themselves, not a pity party, remain productive. But how can we create those bonds of support in the workplace uh, and, and maybe kind of stop paying lip service to mental health in the workplace? We really have to stop those lunch and learns and those pamphlets and those little bracelets. They're all part of the ecosystem and that perfect recipe to change things. But the pandemic now has highlighted the importance, finally. I'm not saying I, I was waiting for a pandemic, but mm. now more than ever, People are realizing that people need to be supported more than ever. And I just hope, Mark, that these supports will sustain themselves after the pandemic is over, because that's when people will really need the help. Uh, not during the marathon often that people, you know, get aches and pains and keel over after the marathon. That's when it hurts. And so I'm hoping that we will put in place and sustain those, those efforts to support Canadians well beyond the pen. Stefan Grenier, he's the uh, founder and lead innovator at Mental Health Innovations Consulting. You can find more information about him at stefangrenier.com. And what's your what's your company's website? Supportyourpeople.com. Pretty easy to remember, supportyourpeople.com. <laughs> so both go to that website and supportyourpeople.com. Thank you very much, Stefan, for joining me today. Thank you. Right on, Mark Best. My thanks to mental health advocates Stefan Grenier, Ben Miller, and Steve Lurie, each of whom joined me on our Mental Health Live show for Bell Let's Talk Day. That's it for this episode of the Living Well podcast for Morneau Chappelle. I'm your host, Mark Hennick. Until next time, take care and be well. You've been listening to the Living Well podcast. Mark Hennick is our host and executive producer. If you like what you heard, subscribe to the show. There's no cost involved. You just hit the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a comment and a rating to let us know how we're doing. For more information about the show and the WellCan project, visit wellcan.ca. The Living Well podcast is produced for Morneau Chappelle by Mark Hennick and Eye Contact Productions. I'm Dave Trafford.